Hey, my name is Paige, one of our servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. I want to share this morning from a message entitled How Jesus Relates to You, to Me, to Us. And if you're taking notes, kind of a subtitle of this would be Becoming Like Children. I, I really think the invitation this weekend, again, as strange as this might sound, is an invitation from God Himself, from our Heavenly Father. And He's saying to us right here today at Ethos, hey, I want you to become like kids. I want you to recognize who you really are. I want you to embrace that. I want you to come to me as such. Let's pray together one more time this morning. God, we thank you for these few moments that we have to share together, to lean into your word, to your truth, to your presence, to your love. God, would you make up the distance now between what I've prepared to say and what you want to speak into the hearts, the lives, the minds, the homes, the dorms, the classrooms of every single person represented here and those online. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. And God bless your Philadelphia 76ers in game seven today. You may be seated. Come on, the Sixers are playing today at 3.30. And you know your boy is a Philly fan. And on Friday, if Golden State had beaten, or Thursday night, was it? If they had, no, Friday. If they had won the game against the Lakers, the Sixers would play at 8 o'clock. And so I was rooting for Golden State because my wife really doesn't want me to watch the Sixers game in the middle of the day on Mother's Day. And I was like, this is the worst case scenario ever. Game 7, I'm like, baby, I'm sorry. It's Mother's Day, but I got to watch the game. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to take care of the kids. You know I will. But anyway, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Anyway. How Jesus relates to us. You know, you know being a mom, um, I, I know this because I have an amazing mom myself. I have an incredible stepmom as well. It's been a part of my life since I was six years old. I, I get to watch my wife, who I think is just second to none, get a little emotional thinking about it. But I know that being a mom comes with all sorts of really unhealthy expectations. Uh, today, it feels like moms kind of carry this burden of the expectation of having a Pinterest-worthy home, of having Instagram-worthy outfits. So many of you probably came today, and you're ready to take pictures with your kids and whatever photo wall we have created. The team always does such a fantastic job of creating those moments, those experiences, but we almost feel pressure to get the perfect photo as a result. Or maybe you have the expectation sometimes of having elaborately themed birthday parties. You know, my wife goes like all out for birthday parties, and I'm like, babe, this seems like ridiculous to me like what are we doing now but but there's all sorts of expectations or you have the expectation to have a successful career but then you feel guilty because you're not home as much with your kids as you'd like to be or you are a stay-at-home mom but then you feel guilty because you're not contributing financially to the degree that you wish you could there's an expectation to be a homer mom or to be a stay-at-home teach your kids at home mom to do the laundry clean the house, cook for meals, shop for clothes while balling on a budget. We have all sorts of expectations, right? And then there's single moms who carry a burden that many of us can't relate with and potentially even carry the burden of past guilt or shame that they haven't been able to fully overcome. Expectations are a weighty thing. In fact, all of us can relate with this on some level. I know that I constantly battle with trying to live up to the expectations of others or trying to live up to my own unrealistic expectations or sometimes, maybe, maybe you can relate with this, I, I wrestle with the lie of the expectations I think that God has placed on me. In fact, if you battle with this at all, some sort of pursuit of these expectations or pursuit of what maybe we could even define as perfectionism, 
Oftentimes what you'll find is that in some area of your life, you will almost lie in order to show an image of yourself that's not real. Hashtag social media, enter exhibit A, Instagram, and every other avenue through which we put out there this image of ourselves as to appear like we're living up to the expectation that nobody else is actually even living up to. Or maybe, maybe the expectations are paralyzing to you. Maybe expectations that you have for yourself or that you think others have for you cause you to avoid something that you'd like to do altogether because you're afraid you won't hit the standard. And so you don't even try. You don't get to enjoy the joy of maybe even some pleasures that you're just concerned because I'm not going to be able to do it as well as what somebody else has done it. Or I know that this is one that I've experienced many times in my life. You obsess over something to get it just right without realizing that perfectionism actually hinders your progress from doing what God has really called you to do, the better parts of life, all while telling yourself, this is the price I pay in order to be successful. Expectations, man, they, they'll crush you. In fact, there's a Christian psychologist that I follow and he recently said that perfectionism or this burden of expectations is a covering for our deepest insecurities, our deepest fears, and even our, our hidden sin. Here's the question I've been thinking about this week. And again, at the risk of this sounding far more spiritual than I intend for it to sound, I was just asking God, God, what, what do you really want to share this weekend? If you want us to deviate from our series just a bit, I'm, I'm wide open to do that. Like, what do, you want to, what do you really want to say? How do you want to encourage some people this weekend? And I, I just started to ask, like, this question just kept coming up within me. Where does this burden of expectations come from? Why do we all carry it? Some may be heavier than others, but I would just, I would offer to you that if you never feel like you wrestle with unhealthy expectations, it's probably because you think too highly of yourself than you ought. But we all carry this to a certain degree. I've noticed that even with my kids, that my kids make mistakes just like your kids do, just like we all do. And as a parent of an eight-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter, I've been just reflecting throughout the course of their lives as to the three different ways that I've observed of what they do when they make a mistake. Sometimes I'll see my kids try to justify those mistakes or point the blame at somebody else, right? We, we all do this. We're like, well, here's the reason why I really did that. And it's actually my brother's fault. And so I can't really be to blame for this. Or sometimes they'll just hide the mistakes altogether. They'll just kind of brush them off. They don't want anybody to know about it. I remember one time, when I was in high school, I had some friends over and we were just kind of goofing off in the basement. One of my buddies like pushed me up against the wall and I flew, like I went through, created a big hole in the drywall right between the studs. I didn't want to tell my parents about it. So I just put a picture right over top of that, you know, I'm just going to hide it. Like they'll never, they'll never know. Why did that picture move six feet over? That makes no sense. But, and so we just try to hide our mistakes. But every so often, I'll also see my kids both of them will, will at times bring their mistakes, possibly even their sin. They'll, they'll bring them to Courtney and I. They'll expose them out in the open and they'll ask Courtney and I to kind of walk through that mistake with them. Now, for much of my parenting life, which isn't that long, and some of you have way more experience than I do, and that's what we had this parenting panel for last weekend, but I've, for much of my parenting life, I've I tried to convince my kids when they made a mistake. If they hid from it or tried to justify it, I wanted them to know, this is the mistake you made. Here's why it is a mistake. And now here's what you can do to overcome the mistake. And I don't know when this happened, but I, 
I begin to realize I'm not approaching this the right way. And again, this is going to make me sound like I'm a way better dad than I am because we're all in this journey together, but I'm beginning to realize and hopefully operating from this place more often than not that my goal is not to convince them that they've made a mistake, but to convince them that they can come to me and Courtney whenever they do make a mistake and no matter how big or how small that mistake may be. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century American preacher and revivalist, he, he once said that there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. This quote often comes back to me as it relates to the way in which I pray that we can be parents and fathers and mothers here at our church. I had this quote written on a sticky note on my desk. In fact, this quote has recently challenged me in such a way where I began to think, in fact, I want to offer this to us as a church. This is sort of that unifying moment that I mentioned a moment ago where I just, I get this sense and again, this might sound kind of out there for some of you who are maybe newer to an environment like this, not sure what you believe about God. But I get this sense that this is what God is asking of us here at Ethos, to lean into this. And I think our goal, not just as parents, but really as followers of Jesus, that together our goal is that our kids would leave the house or someday go on and do whatever they would do. And, and maybe they leave our community here at Ethos, but they'd be unable to live the rest of their lives believing that their sins and sufferings repel Christ. In fact, I wonder what it would look like if, if we centered all of what we did around this one reality right here. Because I want to offer to us this morning the reality, the truth, that this is exactly Jesus' goal for us. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus, the moment that you are, you become a Christian, that you're, you're born again, so to speak, you become a follower of Jesus, I really believe that the number one goal that God has for us is to know, is to reframe the way in which we think that we would understand that our sin, that our suffering, they do not repel Christ. In fact, at the risk of this sounding a bit elementary, let me just lean into this just a little bit more. Think about this for just a moment, that after Adam and Eve had first sinned in Genesis chapter 3, when they first eat from the one tree that God said, hey, look, the, everything else, these millions of trees, they are for you to experience life, to receive joy, to experience my goodness, my relationship with this one tree, just as an act of obedience in relationship to me. I just, I just, not, don't exercise your own autonomy, exercise and surrender to me and you'll experience experience real life, real, real joy, real relationship. And of course, we know the story, Adam and Eve, they eat from the fruit. And in Genesis chapter three, listen to this. My prayer is that we would lean into this in a new, fresh way today. Because he said that Adam and Eve, they go into hiding and they run from God, but then God calls out to them and says, hey guys, where, where are you? Why are you guys hiding? And note for just a moment, that Adam and Eve's sin, that they're suffering, does not, call God, does not cause God to run from Adam. It doesn't cause him to run from Eve. It actually causes God to run towards them. Could it be that our sin and suffering is actually the thing that Jesus is most attracted to? Could it be that our sin and suffering is the thing that causes Jesus to come closest to us? Because here in the very next line, Adam says, well, I heard you in the garden and... I made some assumptions. I, 
I assumed that I ought to be afraid. I ought to be scared because for the first time in my life, I realized that I was naked. And he wasn't talking about being physically naked. For the first time in my life, I realized that I'm vulnerable, that I'm not perfect, that I, that I, that I can't rely on my own strength to be made right with you. And then God says these famous words, but who told you that? Who told you that you were naked? Who, who told you that you're not enough? And that this is what happens in all of our lives so frequently. And I know this is what happens in the lives of so many of the moms here, and not just for moms, but everybody. But I know in particular there's, an, there's, a, there's a unique weight that moms carry. Who told you that you're not enough for that child, for that teenager, for that adult child? In fact, that's exactly what Satan wants to do. Our spiritual enemy is constantly trying to whisper, no, 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 shout lies to you. But if we pause long enough, and it's one of the hardest things to do in life, is to unhurry our lives just enough after we've sinned, after we've experienced the suffering of shame, is to unhurry our lives and to come to God and realize that God is in those moments actually declaring truth the very moment after the enemy is trying to declare lies over your life. See, the enemy will tell you it's all your fault, but God says, no, no, let me help you. Let me, I'm actually drawing myself closer to you. Well, but, but you got to understand though, it's actually all God's fault. So when he comes closer to you, you ought to be concerned about that. You ought to be afraid like Adam was. You ought to be scared and go into hiding. And God said, no, I have a life-giving plan for you. Satan says, well, you should blame God then because it was his plan. And so therefore it's his fault that you're in the situation that you're in. But God says, no, no, I want you to keep running to me. I'm going to show you some things you haven't seen before. Well, at least don't tell anybody about it. God says, your, your church still loves you. Those people care deeply about you. They are not ashamed of you. Satan will tell you that you should be ashamed though. And God says, but bring your shame to me. No one else deals with this. Nobody else deals with that temptation. Nobody else deals with that sexual addiction. Nobody else deals with alcohol the way that you do. Nobody else deals with the relationships that you do. Nobody else deals with the financial frustration and aggravation that you do. Nobody else deals with the marital issues. Nobody else deals with the friendship issues. No, you're all alone in this. God says, no, you're not. Well, you need to try harder at least. Dig yourself out of this hole that you got yourself into. And God says, surrender to me. Even if it was a result of your own doings and your own decisions, I'm still here. But you're not perfect though. God says, yeah, that's, that's actually true. And yet I still love you no less. You know, this past March, I, I celebrated 20 years of, of being a Christian, of, of following Jesus. Two decades now of the best that I understand, I'm continuing to grow in this, of saying yes to him as much as I possibly know, surrendering to him as much as I possibly understand. And and just this past March, just a few months ago, as I began to reflect, I just started thinking back on the last two decades and some of the highs and the lows and the different doubts and questions and the ways in which I understand things I didn't understand and don't understand things I used to think that I understand. And, and as I began to reflect, I realized that a lot of my Christian life had been spent not trusting God with my full self. Like I would bring God my achievements and accomplishments, but I would destroy myself for my own failings. In fact, about four years ago, I, I just began to learn this. I just began to lean into this. And as a result, I've, I've, I've been on this journey of relearning to do what I learned to do as a child, to bring my whole self to God without shame and without hiding, 
just being vulnerable and open and saying, God, this is who I am and this is what I bring to you and this is what I can bring to the community, the closest friends around me. I just want to be honest without pushing, without striving, without hiding. And in fact, it's been in this discovery over the past four years that's led me to understand that there are actually stories of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that I have read incorrectly And even more regrettably, stories in the Gospels that I have taught incorrectly because of the ways in which I've misunderstood who Jesus is and how he relates to me. More specifically, I remember four years ago being introduced, not for the first time, but probably for like the 300th time, the story in Matthew 14 of Jesus walking on the water and calling Peter, one of the disciples, to come walk on the water with him. And I've known this story front and back. I've heard the story preached hundreds of times. I've read it myself even more than I've heard it preached. I knew the story in the sense of like, I knew it in the most visceral and surreal and familiar way in that I understood myself to be Peter. That Peter being called by Jesus to step out of the boat would step onto the water, fixed and focused on Jesus. And he'd do the impossible as he stood on the word from God. But then he'd become distracted by the wind and the waves and the effects of what's going on around him and he'd look to his left and his right taking his eyes off of Jesus he began to sink in the moment of sinking I, I would often feel myself relating to Peter because shortly after Peter sinks he gets scolded by Jesus why do you have such little faith Peter why did you doubt me I cannot grow weary in this good work and so I'm going to step out once again I'm going to try a little bit harder and this time I make it a little bit further on the proverbial water so to speak but eventually still no doubt I'd fall I'd sink and I'd carry the weight of the shame what I felt like was a scolding from Jesus so once again I'd step out of the boat and I'd try it again inevitably failing again this time maybe withstanding the temptation just a little bit longer this time maybe stepping into the calling with courage just a little bit longer this time maybe not succumbing to the expectations of others but keeping my eyes fixed and focused on the voice and the image of Jesus in my life but only to succumb eventually to slipping and falling and sinking and four years ago, through the help of, the help of some friends and my counselor, I, I got introduced to, to the Ignatian prayer. Some of you may be familiar with this, but in the 16th century, St. Ignatius, he, he introduced what we now refer to today as a way in which we learn to read the scriptures. The Ignatian prayer isn't actually a prayer in the sense that we understand prayer. It's a prayer in the sense of the way in which we set ourselves into the story of the scripture. That the stories of Jesus in the first four books of the New Testament, in the Gospels, that we use our imagination and we consider, as St. Ignatius taught us to, who are you in this story? In fact, I can say, Ethos, that without a doubt, understanding the nation prayer has changed the way I read the scriptures more than any other practice that I've implemented in my life. St. Ignatius would teach us, he, he would say if he were here today, that when you see yourself in this story of Matthew 14 with Peter, the water, that you would imagine, who are you? Are you Peter? Are you one of the 11, 11, other 11 in the boat? Are you, are you looking at Jesus from a distance? Maybe you're walking with Jesus, encouraging Peter to come walk with you in Christ too. Who are you in this story? And then consider for a moment, what are you experiencing through your five senses? What do you see right now? What do you hear? What do you taste? What do you smell? What do you feel? 
that St. Ignatius would say, use your imagination and creatively consider, who am I right now in this moment, in this story? Now, if you're very left brain oriented and you think real logically and pragmatically as, as, as I so often do, this doesn't feel like a whole lot of help to you, at least in the moment. If you're very right brain oriented, more artistic and creative, this will unlock a whole new way in which you will see so much beauty as you read the scriptures. But I would offer to you that even if you're left brain, that this, the Ignatian prayer, and setting yourself into this story, slowly reading, not as many left brain folks do. We read the scriptures to check it off of our list, and one more checkbox makes me feel good today, right? Like it's some sort of religious routine in which we enter into in our first 15 in the morning or whenever you read the scriptures throughout the day. But I want to offer to you to maybe just slow down and look at the stories in a fresh new light. Smell, in one sense, the salt from the sea kind of whiffing through your nostrils. Imagine for a moment some of, the, some of the wind and the waves kind of causing you to kind of glare with the dimness in your eyes as you see Jesus in the distance. Feel the water on you as you read the story and consider what's going on right now? Who am I in this story? As I begin to learn this Ignatian prayer, I, I realized that I had actually twisted this story for my own purposes. In fact, I had learned that I actually liked that Jesus would scold me after I made a mistake. Because I felt like if I was being disciplined, that then I was getting what I deserved. And if I got what I deserved, then eventually, if I served my time long enough, I could come back into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. But in the interim, I had to suffer the shame. I had to suffer the consequences of having made the mistake. And yet, and yet, this was actually hindering me from relating and discovering true relationship with Christ. And I'd venture to say that for many of us, the reason why some of our exterior or horizontal relationships aren't the ways in which we desire for them to be is because we're not relating to Jesus the way that Jesus desires for us to relate with him. That so often our horizontal relationships are an overflow of what we experience as Christ followers with our vertical relationship with God. And I just want to offer to us this morning a slightly unique message and a slightly unique approach because every few months it seems like God just kind of arrests me in one sense. Like just doesn't allow me to teach what I had planned on teaching and it frustrates the crap out of me by the way because I got to change the whole thing. I don't like that because I'm very left brain. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm I'm teaching in December, not to mention next week. God, what are you doing to me? And yet there's these moments where I just sense that God wants us to come back in this place where we just sit in awe and wonder of the reality that Jesus deeply desires not just kingship, not just lordship, but friendship with you and I. And what I discovered in reading Matthew 14, what felt like for the first time four years ago, is that before Jesus corrects Peter, he rescued Peter. And we see this in verse 31. It says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him, as if to imply that Jesus never even allowed Peter to go all the way under the water. He's like, no, Peter, 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 come here, come here. I got you. Hey, Peter, Peter, why do you have so little faith? Peter, why, why did you doubt me? What did I do to you? Or what, what have I ever revealed to you that would cause you to, to doubt me? And here's what I began to discover as I put myself into the shoes of Peter, that I had this wrong my whole life. I always pictured the falter and the failure, then finally the begrudging hand of help from Jesus. 
Like Jesus would say to me, I knew you were going to screw up. Hey, I'm still here, but I knew you were going to mess up. And that's why I was standing right by your side. But what I noticed is it's not a scolding at all. It's really like a loving post-game analysis that Jesus gives to Peter here. Like, hey, son, what happened there? What happened out there? Hey, son, how can we together help you stand once again? It's a loving, protective, and parental approach that Jesus takes, which leads me back to Luke chapter 18, our theme verse today, that one day some parents brought their kids to Jesus so that Jesus could just bless them. No, no other purpose. They didn't want anything even from Jesus per se. They just wanted the presence of Jesus, knowing that that was enough. And the disciples saw and they scolded the parents for bothering him. Hey, Jesus has better things to do than this. But Jesus called the children and said to the disciples, guys, let him come to me. In fact, I want you to know this. Hey, hey, disciples, hey, followers of Jesus in the 21st century here at Ethos in person online, I want you to know it's actually the children. It's actually the children. It's people who are just like these kids that receive the fullness of my kingdom. In fact, when Jesus said that it's the childlike that the kingdom of God was composed of, I think we have to ask the question, what was Jesus considering? What, what did he mean? Because so often in our world today, I know that I do this, I venture to say that you do this as well, that we tell children to behave like adults, but Jesus tells the adults to actually model themselves after the children. There's something that kids know that somewhere along the line, it seems like as we grow older, we think we're growing more mature, when in reality, we almost grow immature as it relates to the ways in which Jesus is calling us to come to him. See, you, you know this, I know this, that kids have a sense of wonder that we lose when we become adults. How many of I mean, you just, you love watching kids play games. In fact, it's almost fun playing games with them because it takes you back into this childlike way of playing again. And it gives you an excuse because if you and I played like our kids played, like just with just each other, people would look at us like we're weird. But if there's kids around, you're like, yeah, cool. I'll play Spider-Man and Batman with you. Let's go, you know? But no, they have this beautiful childlike wonder about them that we lose as adults. In fact, uh, so many of you are familiar with this. If you've been coming to Ethos for any length of time, you, you know, like, we, like I, I don't ever want our spirituality to be void of practicality. And yet there comes a point, though, in our faith, we just got to get back to this place, and really that's what worship is best at. We just come back to this place where we say, God, you're amazing. You're incredible. And I'm just going to sit in childlike wonder of you. This is what David meant when he said in Psalm 139, you have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways before a word is on my tongue. Lord, you already know it. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge. Look at these words. They're too wonderful for me. They're, you're, they're too lofty for me. They're too full of wonders what David is saying here. And I think the invitation for us once again is to come back into this childlike wonder as it relates to the way in which we think about who God is.
the way in which we understand God to relate with you, the way in which we reflect on the grace, the kindness, the compassion in the love of our heavenly father towards you. I love this quote from Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite New Testament scholar, when he once wrote that a child enjoys much, but man, they can't explain a whole lot. How much do we have to learn from that right there? My son Judah, he's eight years old, and, and it's encouraging to me how much he just enjoys life, but can't explain any part of life. <laughs> and yet there's just joy in him. I was watching this, this show on HGTV, as you do when you grow older, and, and it was one of those real estate shows, and this couple was looking for a vacation home in Hawaii. I was like, man, they are suffering down there. And, and they eventually find their home. And, and as they do at the end of the show, you know, they, they show them kind of settling into the home, then exploring the town where they're, where they're now going to vacation frequently. And, and, and they go off into this, into this park and they're walking on this bridge. It's just kind of a quick shot of them watching, walking on this wooden bridge, just kind of swaying in the wind as they're walking. And, and in one and in one direction, they see the ocean. In the other direction, they just see like this volcanic, beautiful, mountainous scene. And the wife looks at her husband as the scene begins to conclude. And she says, I quote, I stand here and I feel so small. And that makes me feel so good. And I remember lying in bed and I'm listening to that quote. And I couldn't help but think, that's how we're supposed to approach God. I stand here and I feel so small and that makes me feel so good and safe and at home. Do you know the Hebrew word for worship actually means that we lie back down in the dust from which we were once created? That in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, worship was literally a way in which we put ourselves back into this posture of getting down into the dirt from which God first formed us. Because the only difference between us and the rest of the animal kingdom is the breath of God that was received by our physical cavities, by our bodies. And it was God's breath that was forming us into his image. But worship is actually a way in which we remember where we once came. And by remembering from where we came, we grow in our knowledge and awareness and wonder of the reality that God cares for us yet still. I worship because I remember how big God is. I don't worship to get something from God. That's manipulation. I worship just to simply be and remind myself that God wants to just be with with me. In fact, I think too often what happens in our lives is we have this big world mentality and this small God theology. But when it comes to God, no matter what season we find ourselves in, no matter what pain we're experiencing, God wants us to flip that script to remember, no, no, we have a big God theology and a small world mentality. That God is just, he's, he's bigger than that thing. That thing that keeps you up at night, that problem you face with your kids, that financial instability that you are experiencing even right now, that relationship problem, God's saying, no, I'm, but I'm bigger than all of it. Breathe. One of the things that I've been thinking about, I didn't share this in first service, it just kind of came up in me right now. One of the things I've been thinking about 
in asking God is that we would be a church, a people, a community, a family. Because in the New Testament, church was never meant to be a, simply a gathering. It was always intended to be a family, a community that does life together, that stays committed to one another. And I've been praying is asking God, God, would you give us wisdom on how we could grow in community together slowly following you. Because so often what happens is even on a Sunday morning, we can become so attracted to the hype that we become almost, we almost feel awkward in the silence. But it's actually in the silence where God speaks. And it's actually in the silence where God reveals to you his peace. And it's actually in the silence when you begin to experience once again that, that simple, gentle voice of God that causes you to remember just how wonderful he really is. God, would you teach us to at times shut down the sound and just sit in silence and be reminded of how beautiful you really are? Because even kids, they seem to be just comfortable in the silence in a way that adults just aren't. Additionally, I found that kids have a deep trust. Have you seen this before? Kids seem to trust people in ways that you and I just don't trust people. Recently, we were at a track meet for my daughter and Courtney and I sort of lost sight of Judah and the whole area was fenced in so we weren't overly concerned but there's still that part of you, come on parents, you know exactly what I mean when you can't find your kids, they're not in eye shot of you and you're really concerned like where are they right now? And in the distance, not too long after we realized that he wasn't by our side, we saw Judah walking towards us, but he didn't see us. And as he was walking towards us, we saw him go up to two different groups of people, and he's, he's kind of tugging on their hands, and he's talking to them. We're like, what's he doing? And so Courtney started walking to him, and I said, like, just hang on, baby. I just want to see what Judah does for a moment. I want to see how he handles this. He goes up to the next family, and he's saying something to them too. And I said, Hey, buddy, oh, over here. He looked. He's like, huh. He walks towards us. Hey, son, what, what, um, what were you asking them? What were you, what were you saying to them? I just said, have you seen my mom? <laughs> he just assumed. Somebody's going to take care of him. Somebody's going to help this boy out. There's just this trust that kids have. They, just, they know that somebody... They, they just don't have that doubt that someone is going to look after them. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul is encouraging us in verse 15, to, to have that same trust in our Heavenly Father. He says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear as it relates to the way in which you think about God, the ways in which you think about the way, how He loves you and cares. You received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we now cry out, Abba, Father. We talked about this in our Galatians series just before Easter, how intimate and endearing this term Abba is, the invitation that God has for us to refer to him as such. And this is paramount to understand as it relates to our faith. And here's why. Because before you were a student, before you were a mom, before you were a dad, before you were an entrepreneur, before you were an employee, before you were a, a dog, you are first a child of God. Mom, listen, before you were a mom, you were first a daughter of a king. This is your first calling. Before your kids were your kids, they were kids to your heavenly father. 
a couple weeks ago, I was, I was just sort of trying to figure out problems. You know, just one of those weeks where it just felt like everything was a problem. Like, there's so many problems. And I was just praying and asking God, how can I help here? What can I do here? What does this look like here? How can we fix and adjust this? And, and, I'm, and I'm like stressing about it. And, and I'm just thinking like, I got to do something. And I just got this sense, this impression. Like the Spirit of God said to me, son, when, when did knowing that I love you, that I'm for you, and that my incomparable strength is on your side, when did that stop being enough? When did you think that you had to figure it all out? In fact, the question wasn't, who told you that you're not enough? The question that I felt like God was asking me was, who told you that you are enough? And that you can't lean on me? That I'm not fully enough? Eugene Peterson once said that all the persons of faith I know are sinners, doubters, uneven performers. He said, we're, we're secure not because we're sure of ourselves, but because we're sure that God is sure of, of us. I think the third thing that we see as it relates to the way in which God wants us to lean back into being his child is that children are so quick to just forgive themselves. Have you noticed this before? Somewhere along the line, I think it's somewhere in our adolescence, our early teenage years, we carry this into our adulthood, no doubt. We're really slow to forgive ourselves. I see this so much with moms. I have an incredible mom, a fantastic stepmom, an amazing mother-in-law. Like as much as I love to poke at her and make fun of her, like I love my mother-in-law. And I get to see this in my wife firsthand as well. The expectations that they try to live up to, the way in which they want to be perfect. And as a result of their imperfection, they're so slow to forgive themselves. And then I look at my kids when they were young. And sometimes I'm almost like, you probably shouldn't forgive yourself that quickly. Like you probably should feel the effect of that a little bit longer. But they're so quick to move on after they've received forgiveness. Once my wife and I say, it's okay, you're forgiven. It feels like my son then is so quick to be like, cool, I'm gonna move on. Life's good. In fact, life is, life is grand. Have you noticed this, in fact, listen to me though, this is important. There's a big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, between guilt and shame. See, guilt is actually a good thing. Guilt says I did something bad, but it turns negative and it turns unhealthy and it turns in one sense even anti-Christ. The moment when we consider what we've done and we identify that as our own personal identity. Now saying, I am bad. And this is exactly what the devil tries to do to you. Is he tries to attach your actions with your identity to create a sense of shame. You'll never have a great marriage. You're never going to measure up. You'll never have a great ministry. Your kids will never respect you. You'll never experience success in that area of your life. And the moment though, listen to me, that you start dwelling in your shame, your spiritual enemy has you trapped exactly where he wants you. Because the devil wants to use your shame to drive you from God, like we see in the garden. But God actually wants to use your guilt to draw you towards his grace. Because our sin and suffering do not repel us from Christ. Our sin and suffering may just be the very thing that causes Christ to be drawn toward us. 
And the invitation for us today is let the children come to me. You never outgrow the fatherhood of God. Whether you're 14, 41, or 104. And there ain't nobody in here 104. You never outgrow the fatherhood of God. And moms, this applies to you. Dads, this applies to you. Sometimes we can try to become so manly and try to figure it all out on our own. But you never outgrow the fatherhood of God. You're a child of God. And I think the invitation of Jesus is to act like one. I'll close with this story. I've shared this a few other times over the years, but I just forgot about it until just this past week. Now, for many years before we would put Judah to bed, he insisted, required really, that he would jump off the bed into my arm seven times or else he'd refuse to go to bed. Come on, putting your parents, putting your kids to bed is a really hard thing. Like, any parents with me in here? Am I all alone in this? Okay, six of you, three of you, two of you. Okay, thank you so much. Like, it's like a reverse hostage situation. Like, I will do anything to keep you in there, please. Like, but somewhere last year, he stopped asking me if he could jump into my arms before bedtime. I don't know what happened or when it happened, but I was okay with it. Like, I was like, good, because my back is starting to hurt every time I do it. You're starting to get a little bit too big, and I'm not sure I can keep up with this much longer. But just this past week, he once again, he, he said, Dad, can, can I jump into your arms again before, before bedtime? And I was like, yeah, actually, that, that, sounds, that sounds good. And after the first jump, I was like, oh, gosh, it's never been this hard before. I'm like almost dropped him. Courtney's watching. He's like, babe, like, you good? I'm like, yes, come on. Like, God, you know, game seven, let's win this thing. You know, put, that had nothing to do with the story. I just can't wait for game seven today. But, and after we're done, I'm throwing him back on the bed and, and again, I, I realized that at some point I'm physically not going to be able to do that. Or, at the very least, it's going to get really awkward. He's going to be like 40 years old and we're like, we probably shouldn't do this anymore, buddy. Like, somebody finds out about this. That's going to be weird. Like, but I pray, though, that Judah always remembers, Dad can't catch you. But your heavenly father can always catch you. That he never loses his wonder and his deep sense of trust to know that immediately Jesus reached out and grabbed Peter and then lovingly said, hey, how can I, how can I help you walk through this again? And so today the invitation's simple. It's not that profound. But I do think that the implications are pretty radical to come back to God like a son, like a daughter, like a child.